0: This is Archive Atlanta, episode 87, Inman Park Part 2. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. Today, we are back for part two of the story of Inman Park. And let me just say, I'm proud of myself because I do a lot of part ones that never have a part two. So just patting myself on the back here for actually completing this. And I I thought this was going to be shorter than the first episode, and it's not. So it just proves to me, again, the amount of information that Inman Park has to share. And this is without covering everything. I miss some churches. I miss some houses. And I miss some stories. Um, but I did the best that I could. We left off just before the Panic of 1893, which was a nationwide economic depression that impacted all of Atlanta. Joel Hurt's other project, which would be the future Druid Hills, actually lost its financial backing, and the idea was shelved for an entire decade. In Inman Park, East Atlanta Land Company pushed to sell their remaining lots, and an auction was scheduled for May of 1895. These were advertised as the quote-unquote choicest lots, which included space on Druid Circle, frontage on Euclid and Elizabeth, and even the previously unplatted Springvale Natural Area. And this is important because you can see the development company platting and selling parts of the original design that were meant to be parks or meant to be undeveloped. And this is a direct result of the Depression. The auction was delayed. It happened next year, though. So in the spring of 1896, a new auction had 400 people attend, with 45 walking away as Inman Park landowners. Four lots on the Mesa were sold, and the papers touted how these new homeowners would be facing the grand homes of John Beeth and Ernest Woodruff. East Atlanta Land Company was not playing around. Prices were drastically reduced, deed restrictions were loosened, and payment terms were made easier. And the theme was very much take the money and run. But this didn't take away from the prestige of the neighborhood, so notable Atlantans continued to buy and build here. The neighborhood's Methodist Episcopal congregation dated back to 1866, but in 1896, they're constructing a new church building in Midpark, Park. Designed by Willis Denny, who would also design St. Mark's, First United Methodist, and Rhodes Hall, it was to cost $10,000 and be built from stone mountain granite. The work would take almost two years, and the building was finally opened in 1898. At the cornerstone laying ceremonies, Reverend Glenn gave the prayer. Remember, he lived in one of the Grand Dames from part one. And Reverend Warren Candler gave the address. The Candler connection with this church is real strong. Uh, Warren was the brother of Asa Candler, who created the Coca-Cola Company. And then George Murphy was the builder of this church. And he also built Asa's home in the neighborhood. Warren was already living in an 1892 Queen Anne Victorian cottage, which still stands today on Elizabeth Street, when his brother Asa constructed his Callan Castle just next door. This home, situated on the corner of Elizabeth and Euclid Avenue, was completed in 1903. And it's kind of an uncommon placement on the lot. So there are other corner lots in Inman Park and all over Atlanta. And this house is Caddy Corner, and it is not an accident. So if you've listened to episodes 58 and 60, you've heard the voice of the incredible Sarah Butler, who has spent years of her life researching Asa Candler Jr., which I think, by association, makes you a semi-expert on the entire Candler family. Um, And what she told me was that Asa Candler and Ernest Woodruff had a friendly, not-so-friendly rivalry going on, but it also played out in their personal homes. So in Inman Park, Candler's house is built facing the original Woodruff home, which was on Euclid. So it's very much like a posturing move. And once you know this, you you can't unsee it. Sounds weird. So you, you can't see the old Woodruff home from there. But if you drew an arrow, you can understand exactly what it's pointing at. Not to be outdone, Joel Hurt completed his new house in 1904, just across the street from Candler. Hurt had married Annie Woodruff, who was the sister of Ernest Woodruff. So Hurt's mansion would house uh, he and his wife and their six kids. And it actually got to go inside this house when it was first purchased by the most recent owner. So the Georgia Trust had an event to see the renovations. Uh, it was incredible. So the they bought it for over a million dollars and I think put an equal amount into the house, Um, but it's really just a beautiful restoration job. Inman Park residents worked hard in the 1900s to keep their neighborhood exclusive and desirable. Neighbors fought against the rail yard that bordered Inman Park, essentially freaking out when the Georgia Railroad leased it to the Louisville and Nashville railroads. Because this was operating as a switching station, the bangs and booms could be heard for miles. If you live in Inman Park today, you're probably laughing or nodding your head in agreement because the former Holsey Yard was very similar and very loud until it closed uh, last year. So all the Inman Park residents get together. It really helps that homeowners here are lawyers and judges, and they sue the railroad. And initially, they win. Uh, the case had to be moved to Marietta, but the judge agreed with the plaintiffs that the train noises must stop. Of course, though, you, you can't fight the railroad. And so the railroad company appealed. And by the following year, the Georgia Supreme Court had to rule that the train company can make as much noise as it wants and restored operations to the rail yard. The last landlot auction took place in 1903, and in 1904, the city of Atlanta hired a landscape architect to beautify some of its parks, Springvale Park included. It doesn't hurt that Joel Hurt was on the board of park commissioners, and he had deeded Springvale Park to the city as a public park space. In 1905, Inman Park residents pushed the city of Atlanta to purchase six adjoining acres and expand the park. So first you have to remember that Euclid still did not cut across the open space, so this was all the park, um, that stretched from Waverly Way to Edgewood and then bordering the former Mesa. So at this point, the mesa had been platted, uh, the Woodruffs built a new mansion on it, and the private citizens who owned this land, they were like, oh, we've had offers, you know, to sell it for $25,000, but we'll cut the city of Atlanta a deal and sell it for $20,000. And this expansion would have made the park boundaries go all the way to Elizabeth Street. As I'm sure you can tell... This never happened. Uh, Euclid would not cut across the park until the 1950s, but I have a drawing of this um, from the newspaper so you can see what the proposed idea was, and I'm going to post that on social media. At the turn of the century, Inman Park was still the place to live, and in 1905, 16% of residents were on the social register, but we have other prestigious new neighborhoods popping up around Atlanta. Ansley Park was developed in 1904, specifically as this driving suburb, and Druid Hills was completed in 1908. So as the automobile becomes more popular and more accessible to families, they use that car to move further from the city center. Around 1909, the neighborhood saw a big crime wave, and that was not isolated to Inman Park itself. So this is a time in Atlanta where the first Atlanta Ripper murders uh, take place. The city's just on edge. Um, Then you have things that aren't really a crime, uh, but it bothers Inman Park residents. So Dr. Starnes operated a sanitarium over on DeKalb Avenue, and the residents here hate him. And mostly because at that time, a sanitarium is what we would think of today as maybe a drug rehabilitation center. And so Dr. Starnes helped those recovering from drug and alcohol addictions. Every once in a while, a patient would get out, um, maybe be running around naked. It happened. And so residents of the neighborhood um, are upset when they realize that Dr. Starnes has applied for a permit to operate a new business along Edgewood Avenue. They fight it so hard, the permit is eventually denied and the building is then marketed as small apartments. FYI those are still there today it's 764 Edgewood Avenue um, and their apartments are condos today which I think is pretty cool. In that same year, the men of Inman Park decided to take matters into their own hands after they've been dissatisfied with the Atlanta police force. So there's a 10-day stretch of numerous burglaries. It actually ends with a duel between a homeowner, Thomas Jeffries, and an unidentified black man who was hanging outside of his window in the middle of the night. Uh, Leonard Haas, who was another Inman Park resident, had a private meeting with the police chief, Jenkins. And Jenkins is like, there's nothing I can do. The city council will only allocates so much money i cannot bring extra police officers to your neighborhood so the local men form patrols they do uh, two to four men at a time they take shifts they roam the streets it says that they're armed did not say what they were armed with um, this is a whole other topic i hope to actually do a topic about um, the history of policing um, but this kind of goes to show you white men taking vigilante justice into their own hands which is a, a common theme throughout the history of the south so in doing this research, I assumed that this was the time period and the series of events that must have been when the city installed the police lockbox um, that currently sits in that little park in Delta Place. But upon more research, uh, the box actually dates from 1890 to 1905. So it turns out this was already standing there during this turbulent time in the neighborhood. And the purpose of these lockboxes was to hold a person who had been arrested until the paddy wagon could come around and collect them and bring them to jail. When they were not holding people, though, they were used as storage lockers for the police. So they would put their helmets in there, nightsticks, or raincoats. And this box, um, that everyone loves to take pictures in today, but this box stood in that location until 1935. It was then removed. It made its way into an antique dealer's collection. uh, And then it was displayed in the basement of the Cyclorama Building until 1974. So that's when the neighborhood was revitalizing, which we will talk about shortly. And they reinstalled it back to where it was. Also in 1910, uh, a black hand letter, it was called like a ransom letter, was sent to Asa Candler with demands for money or else his Inman Park home would be blown up. Again, in episode 58, we learned that Candler was no stranger to bizarre blackmail attempts, but this one was very close to home. The note explained that $35,000 must be placed under the steps of the pastor's study inside the Methodist Church. So Candler goes ahead, he takes some Coca-Cola company packing materials, Stuffs an envelope to make it look like it's full of cash, uh, drives past the church, leaves the package on the steps, and then along with Atlanta police detectives, he sits around the corner and waits. And just minutes later, Daniel Johnson comes riding down the street on a mule and stops for his bounty. Of course, the police arrest him, he confesses, but what's really crazy is that the Candler family knew this man well. He was a kid in Bishop Candler's Sunday school class. In part one, I talked about Inman Park's strict deed restrictions and how they were set to expire in 1910. So when they did, neighbors band together to take legal action against East Atlanta Land Company from platting and selling the natural areas. Their complaints are kind of valid. They're like, you know, we bought these lots at high prices. You promised us places like the Delta, the Triangle, the Mesa, that they were going to remain undeveloped and natural, and you lied. And East Atlanta Land comes back and says there was never a promise, but also if we made these parks instead of available house lots, they would be required to be open to black and white residents. And that would, quote, be offensive to older residents, end quote. This is definitely a lie or at least an exaggeration, because in 1910, there was no park space for black Atlantans. And if they were allowed in a park space, it was on one specific day of the week. But of course, East Atlanta land is in the business of making money, and unsold open space is not achieving that goal. Residents were quickly distracted by a new thing to be furious about, and that was the potential retail at the corner of Edgewood and Elizabeth Streets. Someone specifically bought the lot just before 1910, and once the deed restrictions expired, they turned and sold the land for almost double I couldn't find what exactly was supposed to go there, some, some type of store. But a hundred neighbors led by big names like the Candlers, the Dickies, and the Jeffries, declared to boycott any store that would open in the future. While trying to control the development in the heart of Inman Park, they were also trying to control the perceived character of Edgewood Avenue. In July of 1911, City Council, at the demands of Inman Park residents, adopted an ordinance to change the near beer zone. So short tangent here, but near beer was the name of a low alcohol malt beverage that was sold in the early days of Prohibition. So it had like 1% alcohol or something, Um, but it would still get you drunk if you drank enough of it. This ordinance prohibited any saloon to operate on Edgewood Avenue east of Piedmont Avenue, so the side closer to Inman Park, and it would prohibit all, quote, Negro pool rooms, end quote, from existing on the street after December of 1910. Now, fast forward to 1923, a local city councilman even proposed changing the name of Edgewood only from the railroad bridge, so Randolph Street, into uh, the neighborhood to Inman Park Drive. That never passed, obviously, but this occurred all over the city, and so I I hope to cover that in its own topic one day. By 1911, a huge apartment complex was being constructed on Poplar Circle, um, and these were for single workers, most likely working at the Atlanta Stove Works, which today is Crog Market, um, or smaller, lower-income families. At this point, the Edgewood School, which I talked about in Part 1, had been renamed the Inman Park School, and it is overcrowded and in really bad shape. There's a 100 kids crammed in the former coal bin in the basement, and the entire place smells like sewage. By the time the Great Depression arrived, the neighborhood had lost most of its prominent early residents. Asa Candler had moved to Druid Hills in 1916, and he died in 1929. Joel Hurt lived in his home until he died in 1926. And then you have smaller bungalows and apartments um, dotting the street. It would really be the post-World War II period that intensifies the building of these smaller homes. And I've talked about this in many episodes before, but the housing shortages across the nation um, occurred after the GIs returned from World War II. So in an Atlanta, dire situation. Uh, And then in Inman Park, you can see like now when you see one side of the street that has the older big mansions with bigger lots. And then on the other side of the street, you just see the small bungalows in a row. These are almost always built um, in the post-war period. In 1954, Inman Park was rezoned entirely to allow for low- and high-rise apartments, along with light industrial. Many of the larger estates that had survived into this mid-century period were then demolished to build apartments, and the area continued to decline. The Warren Candler home became a home for elderly men. Um, the Asa Candler house became a halfway house for teen boys. And then by 1968, the owner occupancy rate of Inman Park was 14%. And Most of the largest Victorian mansions had become boarding houses or rooming houses. So what happens in the 1960s is that uh, there's a new state highway planned, which is Interstate 485, and it is proposed to go through undesirable or low-value neighborhoods. Um, generally, those are the easiest to take by eminent domain. So the plan was a six-mile highway was going to start in the downtown connector, and it was going to cut through several Atlanta neighborhoods, uh, Morningside, Lennox Park, Copenhill, Inman Park. And the exit ramps were supposed to dump directly onto Euclid Avenue. With the use of eminent domain, homes and businesses in the right of way had already been demolished. And this took out Inman Park Presbyterian, which was a former church. Um, the house that Asa Candler Jr. lived in was taken out. And it was Judge Durwood Pye, who was an Inman Park resident, that fought all the way to the Supreme Court to save his home from an eminent domain. Sadly, he lost. He was forced to vacate. And common practice at the time was If your house was going to be demolished, you would sell it off for parts, so to speak. And it was Pye's house that Robert Griggs was heading to when he fell in love with the Beeth home. I've not yet talked about the Beeth-Dickey house uh, for good reason. While it was one of the first homes built in Inman Park, its role in the neighborhood's revitalization is so important that I thought it was best to cover it in part two. So if you don't know the house I'm talking about, uh, it is arguably the most well-known or at the very least the most photographed home in Inman Park, sitting at 866 Euclid Avenue. Built by John Beath, owner of the Georgia Ice Factory downtown, he began his ice-making career in San Francisco, created over a dozen patents for this process, and the story is that this house was built as a gift for his fiancée to convince her to move to Atlanta. I've been researching this story for weeks now, and while there's not a lot to find, there is a mention of a Mrs. Beeth, so we can be hopeful that the plan worked. The Beeth family uh, left Atlanta pretty early for New Orleans, right before the turn of the century, so it then became home to the Dickey family for several decades, which is why it's known as the Beeth-Dickey house. Quick aside that um, I was also able to go inside this house because the owners are awesome. Then they let us go see inside. It is just as stunning as you can imagine. I was just geeking out in every single room. Um, It was probably the highlight of my historic Atlanta life. By 1968, this house has 34 tenants and urban legend says a basketball court in the living room. I saw a photo at the Atlanta History Center once, and this was several years ago, with what this house actually looked like when Greg saw it. I'm gonna try my hardest to find it and post this because it looked Nothing like it does today. Not even a little bit. It had white siding. Uh, the tower was missing. I mean, when you see this, you can really appreciate the man's vision. In 1969, he purchased the house for $22,000 and moved into one of its room apartments to begin work on the renovation. As others began to purchase homes in Inman Park, uh, they formed Inman Park Restoration, Inc., which was headquartered in the Beath Dickey House. Inman Park was not the first neighborhood to start the fight against the highway. Uh, Morningside was way ahead of them, and the surrounding neighborhoods had formed something called Bond, which was the Bass Organization for Neighborhood Development in 1967. Inman Park actually joined their lawsuit at the last minute against the U.S. Department of Transportation. The legal tactic here was to demand an environmental impact statement, which should have been completed before the project, uh, and it wasn't. So the court ruled in the locals' favor, and they, they ordered the EIS. In 1971, a woman living in Inman Park was interviewed about what it was like to live there, and she says you know, interesting. There's a lot of gunshots. Oh, the other day I took a young girl to Grady who who was on an LSD trip in the middle of the road. Not to make light of any of these issues um, of poverty, lack of services, etc. But it's such a dichotomy from what we see today and a lot of people don't think of the neighborhood in this way. Um, but I think it was uh, one of the bike tour guys I worked with said that his family moved to Atlanta in the late 70s. And the realtor, and they're like, oh, you know, take us to Inman Park. We saw a house listed. And the realtor was like, no, I'm not even taking you there because you have a little kid. You're you're not allowed to live in Inman Park. It's not safe. In 1972, the advocacy group fought for the downzoning of Inman Park and successfully moved from the apartments, commercial, industrial zoning to one to two family residential and small townhouses. And this was a nationwide precedent for this and how other cities' neighborhoods can do this because downzoning is pretty rare. In the same year, the first iteration of the infamous Inman Park Festival took place. Initially, it was called Inman Park is Happening. And the first parade organizer is interviewed, and she says, quote, It's pretty pleasant this season of year, despite great areas of squalor and decay, end quote. 4,000 people show up, and the first tour of homes features 25 different residents, and tickets are only a dollar. In 1973, the Department of Transportation rejected the environmental survey, and this is a huge win for advocates. The Atlanta Board of Aldermen and the Atlanta Regional Commission decide against the project, And Inman Park is added to the National Register of Historic Places. And that brings us to the present day, where Inman Park is once again one of the wealthiest and most desirable neighborhoods in the city of Atlanta. It's also a point of comparison to other neighborhoods that couldn't fight the interstates, and places like Sweet Auburn and Grand Park, and how those projects impacted those places and still do today. So there you have it, the story of Inman Park. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, Remember to leave a rating or a review. Share the podcast with family or friends. And if you want more content, head on over to my Patreon page where there is a link in the show notes. um, And you can learn about how you can support this project. Hope everyone has a great weekend. I'll talk to you next week.